Right, good morning, Matthew 23. Uh, let's, uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that again you will guide us as we seek to understand the words of your dear Son. And we believe that it is definitely your will that we should understand his words and feel them for ourselves. And so we ask, we believe definitely according to your will, for your special blessing upon us now as we seek to understand him, to know him and to make him known. And as we think of his interchange with the Pharisees, we pray, Father, that we may not see this as history, but that we might perceive in those men our own similarities, and that we might be exhorted and encouraged and strengthened by his love for them and by his appeal to them. Father, please go with us. For the Lord's sake. Amen. Well, we may wonder why the Gospel records <clears throat> records so much of the Lord's interchange with the, the Pharisees, because let's face it, three and a half years' ministry of the Lord is recorded here in very, very, uh, in the Gospel records, in very abbreviated terms. Why so much emphasis uh, on this uh, issue of the Pharisees, who were a very small organization? And also here at Matthew 23, what we're going to read uh, this is actually a repetition, a lot of it, almost word for word, of what the Lord has said earlier in Luke 11. So within the economy, if you like, of divine inspiration, there was a particular desire that we should have these records in front of us. And why is that? And I think it's not simply so that we see the context that was leading up to the Lord's death uh, and why he died at the hands of these men, but because in us, there is so much in common with these Pharisees. And at first blush, reading the records, you might think, well, this is not me. But, of course, the, the whole point of the thing is that it is, that you are the man. And I think that they were members of the people of God at that time, of the ecclesia of God, if you like. And therefore, we are not reading about some sort of Gentile evil people long ago and far away. We are reading, in essence, about men and women who, or men I should say, who had the very same uh, nature and the same spiritual tendencies as each of us. And all the way through the record, uh, particularly coming to the end of it, uh, we, we see the Lord's love for these people, when quite frankly I think uh, legalists uh, and these sort of pedants like these guys were tend to get up the nose of all of us and they irritate us, but Oh, the Lord was angry with them. He loved them and wanted their salvation. And we'll be bringing that point out uh, continually. <clears throat> well, he says, verse 3, apparently a strange thing, having warned earlier, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, beware of them and their teaching. He says, they sit in Moses' seat, and so whatever they bid you observe, that observe and do. Just don't do after their works. Now, why would he say this? Why doesn't he actually say, look, quit this system altogether? Well, in John 16, 2, the Lord says that the time will come when they put you out of the synagogues. He never actually asks his people to leave the Jewish system. I would argue that when you come to Revelation 17 and 18 and you get this appeal, come out from Babylon, I know it's uh, seen as anti-Semitic, but I, of all people, I'm not anti-Semitic, I would really take, uh, in the first century context, the Babylon there as being an apostate uh, Jerusalem. And all the similarities between Revelation and the Olivet Prophecy, the call to leave Babylon is the call made in the Olivet Prophecy to come out from Jerusalem. And 
Jerusalem is called, you know, a spiritual Babylon in a number of places in the Old Testament. The question is, why didn't the Lord say to his people right up, it's a fundamental principle that you've got to quit this false religion? Why, at best, did he leave it until whenever he gave the revelation? Well, I think it could be for a number of reasons. I think it could be that he he certainly didn't believe in guilt by association as a principle, that you must separate from religious association with people who don't believe uh, truth. Uh, that clearly was not the sort of person he was. That was not his agenda. His idea could have been that the disciples would remain in the synagogue system as a witness. Or it could have been that he simply made a concession to their weakness. He knew that if he were to say to them at that point, look, get out, they had no credible alternative. And so he let them stay. Uh, and he, his whole idea, I think, was that you're the yeast working inside, hopefully, this, this apostate system. And I think that that, uh, that that has a lot of relevance to the whole vexed issue of fellowship and should we leave, should we break association with these people or that people or whatever. The Lord was far more positive than that. His idea was to try to save people, and he himself was the word uh, made flesh that dwelt among us sinful people. And this is God's whole method of dealing with us, of identity with us through the representative sacrifice of the Lord, rather than turning away in disgust from us because he doesn't agree with us. The Lord says, don't do after their works because they say and they do not. Now, yeah, read that very quickly without putting meaning into words. Their works, they do not. Well, did they do the works or not? He says that don't copy their works, and he, he, yet he talks about all the works they do, and we know that they love doing works, because he says they don't do. They do not. They don't work. And straight away you see that you can apparently do things for God, and yet in his judgment it is not at all. It's like prayer. You can pray, but not really pray. You can say you believe and not really believe. You can say you forgive and you don't really forgive. You can say you love and you maybe don't even know what the word means, biblically, spiritually. Now, he says that they tied heavy burdens, verse 4, onto people. And, of course, 1 John 5, 3, <clears throat> same word for heavy. Uh, we, we read there, and I suggest the context is also of reasoning with Judaizers within the ecclesia, uh, that his commandments are not heavy, are not grievous, the A.V. says. It's the same word as heavy. Well, <clears throat> the fences that they created around God's law were, if you see what I'm saying, higher than actually God's law itself. So they had uh, commanded people to do all kinds of things that they couldn't really do. And the similarity really is with the language of David in Psalm 38.4 talking about the weight of his sin with Bathsheba that he says was a weight that he could not carry until, of course, he collapsed in repentance and threw himself upon God's grace and it was forgiven. So they tied heavy burdens on people in the sense that they didn't allow people access to God's grace. They didn't teach people God's grace, they left them in the position of David after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah with a heavy burden that was too great to be carried. And he says that they, they lay, 
these burdens that are heavy to be carried on men's shoulders. You know, every one of the Greek words that's used in, in those sayings, to be carried, lay them uh, on men's shoulders, is used uh, about the cross. The point I think that the Lord is making is that instead of you know, carrying the cross, it's the word that's used about uh, carrying the cross, um, and the, uh, the cross being laid upon the shoulders of Jesus, and we're invited to, to pick up the same cross and carry it, uh, the Lord is saying well, that's what you should be carrying, but instead of cross-carrying Christianity, literally Christianity, following the Christ, I swore that naked I would follow the naked Christ. Instead of that, there is this worry about obeying the rules and the burdens of men. And have we not seen that in our church experience? That people are so freaked out about uh, obeying uh, the, the situation about fellowship with, with these people or not fellowshipping with those people, carrying uh, the burden of, of dress code and women wearing hats to church and all not chewing gum in church and all, all the rest of it, uh, that that becomes what we consider, quote, soundness in the truth. We consider that that is actually what God wants of a man. And the weight is actually the cross of Christ. That is what we're being asked to carry. Incidentally, the Lord says to the disciples, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot carry them, you cannot bear them at this time. John sixteen twelve, And I... I wonder if, again, that is using certainly the same sort of metaphor uh, of the disciples, uh, of the uh, Pharisees, rather laying uh, these heavy burdens and the sense of commandments upon people. But the Lord didn't see things in such black and white terms. That Look, that's in the Bible, you've got to do it, kind of thing. This is my word and will, you shall do it. He says, look, there's a lot of things I could ask you to carry, and I will ask you, but not at this time. And I, I think that that is uh, to be remembered when we're dealing with new converts, with those who are immature. You can be demanding of people, thinking you have scripture on your side. You should not do this. Well, be like Jesus and recognize that actually maybe they at this time cannot, cannot bear that burden. They can't. Now, of course, the, the whole legalistic black-white binary mindset, of course, can cope with that. But that, I suggest, is what the Lord is, uh, is saying. And he says, and they don't move them. And the Greek word definitely means remove. They don't remove them with one of their fingers. In other words, they could just scribble all these commands they were giving that were so heavy. And one can almost see a similarity with the fingers we use to write emails and stuff like that these days. That uh, with, with a few taps of a finger on a, on a keyboard... You could actually um, remove a whole load of burdens off somebody. Well, he says that these people want to be seen of men, and this any form of spirituality that is done to impress the audience is, is as in the Sermon on the Mount, and here also, is clearly absolutely obnoxious to the Lord. And in fact, a lot of the words that are used here in describing the Pharisees are also used in a more spiritual sense. So I'll give you an example, verse 5. They enlarge their, uh, the borders of their garments. But that Greek word enlarge is quite common 
and it's the usual word translated to magnify or to glorify God. Luke one forty six. my soul magnifies, enlarges the Lord, not myself. So actually these people's spirituality, and if you look at my notes here, you'll, you'll see that on the word study side of it, uh, so many examples of this throughout this chapter, these people were, uh, were not atheists, you know, they, they were uh, trying to obey uh, their own ideas of righteousness rather than enlarging, magnifying, glorifying God. They enlarge the borders of their garments. Well, it's the same word translated hem, which is elsewhere used, of course, about the Lord's hem. People who touch the hem of his garment were, were cured. And they liked, verse 6, the chief places at feasts, the chief uh, reclining places is the idea. And, of course, uh, the Lord in Luke 14 uh, uses those very words when he talks about when you are given uh, an invite to a, a banquet, take the lowest seat. Because when the Lord comes, the people who've taken for themselves the highest seats shall be thrown out in shame. And that is the language of condemnation. So all that they were doing was actually the very opposite, a parody of the, the life of the kingdom as it should have been. And so we have to ask ourselves, am I just doing the same thing? Am I just living out according to expectation that has been placed upon me, maybe by parents, by others, uh, who had a formative role in our spiritual journey. They loved, verse 7, greetings of the markets and to be called of men, verse 8, uh, rabbi. Now, this, uh, I think, is a, is a form of, of the Hebrew word uh, that, that comes from ab, the Hebrew word ab meaning father, and that's why he goes on to say, uh, don't be called master, which is what uh, rabbi effectively meant, and don't be called father, because that's the root of the word rabbi. In, in Hebrew, because you all are brothers. Now, this has got to be taken uh, more seriously amongst us, that if we see the, the height of his lordship and his mastership, if you like, over us, if we are Christ-centered, then we become as brothers. It cannot be that in the light of his greatness that we therefore uh, perceive ourselves as a, a cut above others. Now, that is not to say, that is not to say that there should not be leadership within the early, within the church, because there certainly was in the early church and there was in the Old Testament ecclesia as well. Uh, in fact, when he says, uh, don't be called masters in verse 10. Actually, the same word is used in Hebrews 13 uh, three times. Obey them that have the rule of the mastery over you. Paul was the chief speaker, Acts 14, verse 17. Barnabas and Silas were chief men, were masters amongst the brethren, Acts 15, 22. So it's naive and facile, I think, to, to argue that um, their there cannot be uh, any sort of gradation because we're all brethren. Uh, that's just unworkable in any human society. And 
clearly in the Old Testament, that's not the way God worked. And I think your own community is uh, turn a blind eye to, it, to this. That there is clearly a teaching in the New Testament about leadership and eldership. But the Lord's point is, even though you may be a master, and I said the word is used about certain brethren being, in that sense, elders, you are all brethren, and do not be called that. That is, don't be addressed as that. Don't set yourself up as the reverend or the right reverend or, or whatever. 11. He that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Now notice that present tense. He that is greatest, not he that shall be or would like to be or whatever. Jesus, as so often in his teaching, has an eye on himself. He is talking to himself, as any teacher should, uh, to, to teach God's word and challenge others to, to a higher level of life, but with reference clearly to oneself. And that is, of course, what the Lord is doing here. He was the greatest. He that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Now, that what I've just suggested, that he actually is talking about himself, I think is confirmed in Luke 22, 26 and 27. He that is greatest among you, he that is chief, must be as he that serves. I am among you as he that serves. The repetition of the words among you, uh, your servant, the greatest, clearly he has himself in view. But then verse 12 sort of brings all this home, because whosoever amongst you shall... Uh, shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. The Lord is now saying, and actually I am your pattern. These are the very same words used in, uh, in Philippians 2 verse 8 about Jesus humbling himself, abasing himself, and being exalted. And as Philippians 2 makes clear, that was ultimately on the cross. And the Lord is saying, that is for every one of you, whosoever amongst you. This is the pattern. I am the pattern for all of you, and I am just the extreme personification, an exemplification rather, of that pattern, that I am the greatest, and I am the lowest as well, the most abased. And he says that whoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and whoever shall abase himself, the AV messes this by, by saying, using a different word for the translation, saying he shall humble himself, it's the same word as abased. He that exalts himself shall be abased, shall be humbled, and he who humbles or abases himself shall be exalted. I think what he's saying is that you're going to get to humility one way or the other. For those who don't want it in this life, it will come all too late in the abasement that he spoke about in Luke 14. Those in the ecclesia who have taken the highest place shall be made with shame to take the lowest room. And the, the use of the word shame... I would say, connects with teaching about condemnation. So then, <clears throat> he there on the cross is not some icon to be observed from a distance. He there is our real pattern and our living pattern. And your life path and my life path is arranged by God to the end that we might be exalted in due time, as Peter says. And that means that it will be a path of, of humbling, a path of abasement that he leads us on. You wonder why things happen that humble you. It could be in your health. It could be in a bunch of false accusation. It could be in being unfairly treated. It could be in 
not being able to, to be the person that you know you could be because, I don't know, economic situation, family situation holds you back and you think, but I could be this and somehow God's stopping me. Yeah, don't be surprised because the whole purpose of life for the believer is to be humbled so that we might be exalted in, in due time. Well, in 13, then, the Lord goes on to utter these seven woes on the Pharisees. He's just recently given the parable of the vineyard, and now he gives seven woes. Now, that parable of the vineyard is just a first-century rendition of Isaiah chapter 5, the song of the vineyard. In fact, if you look at the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you'll see that really the Lord's words are so based around that that song of the vineyard, Isaiah's parable of the vineyard, it's it, it, clearly he's basing it on that. And yet straight after the parable of the vineyard, Isaiah goes on to utter seven woes upon Israel for their lack of faith, for their selfishness, uh, for their apostasy, their worshipping of idols, their drunkenness, uh, their materialism, their theft, and, and all this kind of stuff. And now the Lord utters seven woes condemning the hypocrisy of highly religious uh, hypocrites who were the leaders of Israel. In fact, the generation that crucified the Lord was the most Torah-obedient generation of all. And they get seven woes clearly based on these seven woes against an apostate Israel. It just shows that simply being religious... And fulfilling in the eyes of men and women your religious role and uh, responsibility is not spirituality. took me a long time to come to that, but uh, we all are led there, I think, in, in the final end. He says, you lock up the uh, kingdom of God in the face of men. Luke 11.52, the equivalent is, you take away the key of knowledge. What you see here then is that we can stop other people entering God's kingdom. We may think, no, that can't be right, because if God loves all people, he he will uh, want those guys to be saved, and so, uh, well, if someone messes them up, he'll still slip on the key of knowledge kind of thing, even if some other guy took it away from him. Not so. God has, and Jesus has, entrusted us with the gospel. He's uh, in one of the parables, he's like put all his goods, all his wealth into the hands of his servants. And he's gone away. Not that he's not involved with us, but in the sense that he is not jumping in every five minutes to stop us and to save us from messing up. And from that point of view, once you delegate, genuinely delegate authority, like delegating the running of a business uh, to a bunch of people, if they mess it up, they mess it up, and that is your loss. If the harvest is not reaped, even when it's ripe, then it shall be lost. And there's not enough laborers to help in the harvest, as we've seen looking at the parables of the vineyard earlier. So the Lord is saying that we can make people stumble out of the way of the kingdom. We can lock up the kingdom in their face. And we can also, of course, help people. By by contrast, we can help people into the kingdom. What that means then is that It is in the power of our hands, and not just the hands of religious leaders, but in the hands of every single one of us who are God's people, to help people to God's kingdom or to shut up that kingdom against them. If you take that seriously, that thought will come 
continually back to almost haunt you. And it makes you realize that every interaction that you have with your brothers and sisters and with people in the world, they're not just the furniture, the dead, dumb furniture of your life. That just is there. All, every interaction with people is meaningful in that it's going to help them towards God's kingdom or shut up the kingdom in their face. What you talk about at social gatherings, the, the, the differentiation between a religious gathering, like breaking of bread, for example, and a social get-together is, is not really, in this sense, is not there. Our whole interaction with others is part of helping them to the kingdom or not. And that means that you've got to think very carefully what you do and how you do it, how you speak, what, what, what policies you're going to uphold. Now, in, the, in Luke 52, he, he says that the lawyers were hindering those who wanted to enter into the kingdom. And it's the same word used about how the disciples forbade little children to come to Jesus. And when uh, we read in Acts 8, 36, 10, 47, Peter says, uh, how could I forbid baptism? Uh, it's used about forbidding baptism in those two references and acts. And I really believe that this is a way in which you can shut up the kingdom of God against others. To say you're not ready, you're not right, you don't know enough, you've not got enough in your brain cells, or you're uh, this or you're that, or you're living in sin when you are yourself, because we all are. Uh, you're whatever, you can't be baptized. You are shutting up the kingdom of God in the face of people, and in my experience... When people have had that kind of experience, most of them walk away and never get baptized and never come to Christ. I fear terribly for those people who are doing that. He goes on to say that you come to see a land, verse 15, to make a proselyte, and then you make him, you make him the child of Gehenna, the child of condemnation. <clears throat> Just as you make the convert, you make the person condemned. Now, again, this is serious language. This is saying that we really can cause other people to be condemned. And this is why the Lord is saying, you really are heading for condemnation because of this. And again, it is a, a parody of Jesus. Because this strange phrase, you compass the sea, is a very same word that is used about how Jesus walked around the Sea of Galilee. Preaching the gospel, making converts, but they parodied that work of his. You see, they weren't uh, bummers, they weren't lazy, they weren't sitting around watching the telly. They were out there trying to do what they thought was right for God, but they were earning themselves and others a terrible condemnation. We have so much in the power of our hand. And to say, oh, well, I, I better not get involved with preaching or pastoral work, well, no, <laughs> That also, that, that's also a decision. And you're, in that sense, throwing away the key of knowledge and depriving others of that salvation. He says, you make these people double uh, the, uh, the child of condemnation of Gehenna than yourselves. And in verse 14, he, he says that you for a pretense make long prayer, therefore you shall receive greater damnation. So then, there are degrees of condemnation, quite clearly. You've got it there, greater condemnation, or double 
twofold, the, the child of Gehenna, than yourselves. There's degrees of condemnation. What that means, I think, is that when the Lord comes and says to these kind of people who knew the Bible, who knew God's word, etc., and who had given themselves to his service, when he says, I don't know you, you are eternally condemned, you shall go back to the dust, my wrath is upon you, goodbye. They are going to be beating themselves up as they see the whores and gamblers going into the kingdom of God and they themselves chucked out. They're going to beat themselves up mentally to such a point where just to exist in that sense of, that case of being so mentally beat up with yourself, gnashing your teeth in, in anger with yourself, it's just going to be unbearable, even for five seconds to live like that, let alone for a bit longer. Um, whereas maybe the guy who at one point in his life uh, came across the invitation of the gospel and forgot about it and said, ah, it's not for me. Well, I believe such people will have to answer. Uh, but, okay, he, he'll beat himself up, all right. I'm not saying judgment doesn't have teeth, as it were. Uh, but these people who had said yes to the Lord, uh, to the Lord God, and, uh, and claimed to be into his word and that, uh, they are going to have greater, in that sense, condemnation. In verse 16, he starts talking about oaths, uh, and uh, he says that you've made a gradation of oaths, which they had. They had said that if you swear by the temple and you don't fulfill it, well, that's all right. But if you swear by the gold that's put in the treasury, well, then you're going to have to answer. If you swear by the altar, yeah, that's all right. But if you swear by the sacrifice placed on the altar, then you, you've got to stand to that. This whole idea of gradation of honesty, the Lord is saying, no, absolutely not. And he says this clearly in, in the Sermon on the Mount as well. When he says, swear not at all, I think he means, don't swear by your head, by Jerusalem, by heaven, etc. He means swear by God, because in Deuteronomy 6.13 it was made clear, you shall swear by God. Now the Jews didn't like to do that. But all the way through the Old Testament, when people make an oath, they make an oath by God. So I think what the Lord is saying is, look, de facto you are in, in the presence of God, and, and everything, every promise you make is before God. And the fact that the, these guys are uh, trying to make a gradation of, of, of truthfulness, he's saying no. That is not the case. And I think we need to take that in this uh, world in which we live where words have become so important because of the nature of uh, internet communication, uh, written words, etc., uh, and where nice speak has become exalted uh, in the diplomatic world and in relationships, etc., to a quite ridiculous extent. Uh, we need to take this very seriously. Now, he uh, goes on then, um, in 23, to talk about tithing. And he says, you tithe kitchen herbs, mint, dill, and, and fennel, um, but you've omitted the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. And of course, the contrast is between the lightness of what they were, uh, that they were tithing uh, and the, the heaviness of the issues they weren't even touching. There's a word play here based around the Greek word that's translated omitted. He says, uh, you have omitted, verse uh, 23, <clears throat> you have omitted um, the weightier matters of the law. These you ought to have done, and not to leave, 
not to omit the other undone. Again, same Greek word, omit. You've uh, omitted the weightier matters of the law uh, because you think you can get away with not showing justice, mercy and faith because you're tithing your little bits of kitchen herbs uh, and you have actually, uh, and you should not have omitted and left omitted the other. In other words, the tithing of kitchen herbs. What he's saying is, actually, although you tithe the kitchen herbs, God counts it as if you omitted, as if you didn't do it, because you actually uh, didn't see the real heavy matters of, of, of God's law. Now, I think I would have dealt with this whole issue of tithing differently. I would have taken a straight-up, quote, biblical case and said, look here, the tithe... Uh, was to be uh, paid to the Levites, not to the Pharisees, as they demanded. Uh, they weren't the same as the priests. Uh, there's no uh, hint in the Mosaic legislation that a tenth of kitchen, kitchen herbs is to be given to them. And uh, I, would, uh, I could have made a, a pretty strong case that... Um, <clears throat> the tithe was to be paid from harvested crops at time of harvest. But you see, the Lord doesn't do that. He goes along with them. And uh, I think his whole manner of dealing with controversy is a great example for us. And I think you see the essence of a person in how they respond under controversy. And here the Lord is... I think beautiful in the way he does it. He doesn't take the approach I would have done, which is three or four biblical bullet points and said, so what's your answer? He says, okay, you're, you're tithing all these tiny little fragments of kitchen herbs that grow on your windowsill. Okay, actually God doesn't count you as having done that. Yeah, you should have done that. That's in your conscience. You should have done that. But you thought that by doing that, you didn't have to do the, the bigger things, the justice, mercy, and faith. So therefore, actually, you haven't done your tithing of kitchen herbs, which you should have done. You omitted to do that. That's a far more profound answer, and one which would have worked in their conscience. Now, don't forget that later on in Acts, a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith, and there were the Pharisees who believed. So actually, the Lord's policy here paid off. And I think that in our in our dealings with those who differ from us on whatever point, religiously, uh, whatever, um, it's very easy to, to say, look here, the scriptures are up front, I shall state these things in, in bullet point terms, and you should just accept that. But the Lord doesn't do that. He doesn't play that game. He is far more profound than that. And unfortunately, many of us grew up in an environment where that sort of set-piece debate where you won, because you crushed the other guy with your biblical argument, and your biblical argument was correct. Uh, that was seen as preaching the truth. But uh, that is not the way uh, if you're trying to save somebody. Now, that's not to say he was not critical of them. I mean, in verse 25, you make clean the outside of the, of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of uh, unclean things. And he's clearly saying, you Pharisees are the cup and the plate. Um, he, he makes this quite clear, Luke 11:39. your inward part is full of extortion and, and wickedness. 
verse 28 here in our chapter, even so you also outwardly appear righteous. So he's saying those cups and plates that you're polishing on the outside, that's you. Uh, and you're just trying to make yourself uh, look so, so good externally when internally you are full of all these wicked plots and how you can get money out of people uh, and so forth. But of course, uh, Mark 7 is quite clear. Again, Jesus uses the terms inside and outside, where he says nothing on the outside can defile a man. It's what's on the inside that matters. And he uh, then says, if you get the inside clean, then the outside is clean also, verse 26. Now, he said that knowing that everyone would jump up and say, that's not true. Of course it's not true. If you clean the inside of a cup, the outside is not thereby made clean. But Jesus says it is. And of course, he's talking in spiritual terms. He's purposefully provoking them to jump up and say, that's not true. Uh, because that's his point. That's the element of unreality here in his teaching. That as far as God is concerned, you've got to cleanse the inside. And... According to the argument in Hebrews 9 and 10 about cleansing, the sacrifices of the Lord of Moses could not cleanse the conscience. They could not cleanse inside. And the language the Lord is using here is right out of David's psalm in Psalm 51 verse 2 about his sin with Bathsheba, where he says, there's no sacrifice I can offer. You cleanse me, please, in my inward parts. You please cleanse me in my inward parts. The Lord is saying, you guys who are so righteous externally, you are David, after a sin with Bathsheba. And Paul in Romans 4, when he quotes uh, David's soliloquy in Psalm 32, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, uh, he quotes that in the plural about us. He's saying, we are all in the position of David, that no sacrifice can atone for my sin or for your sin. And we need cleansing in the inward part. And of course, the, the thoughtful person who heard the Lord's words in 26 cleansed that which is within. Within the framework of the Mosaic sacrifice system, they'd have thought, well, what sacrifice do you use for that? Isn't one. Oh, what, am I really in the position of David in Psalm 51 too, when he says, cleanse me inside because there's no sacrifice I can offer? Yes, you are the man. This is the whole point. And then with that cleansing, then you become clean on the outside. Now he uses two rather strange examples here, the cup and the plate. The gospel records were written by, uh, under inspiration by the, the writers uh, as the basis, as the handbook of their preaching uh, in the early church. And they would have been used in the early uh, communities of believers. The cup and the plate, surely, surely he chose those two things in specific reference to the breaking of bread. Because the whole language of clean what is inside and then the outside is okay, well that metaphor works well with a cup, but not really with a plate. There's no inside in that sense, of not much of one, to a plate. Um, he chooses cup and plate rather than cup and bowl. A bowl might, one would have said, been a better choice. But he chooses cup and plate, I suggest, because he's hinting at the breaking of bread, which is so relevant to us in terms of self-examination, that it is not what you look like on the outside, that you take your place, probably sitting in plus minus the same part of the hall, 
uh, every or church or whatever every, every time, but it is the inside. Examine yourselves. He says within, verse 28, you are full of iniquity. And he uses this Greek word anomia. Nomos is the law. You inside have no law. And yet, these are people who spend their whole lives messing around with God's law. And he says you have no law. You are lawless. And I, I think that this is how human nature is structured. That we like to be technically obedient to external laws because it's a cover for the fact that inside, maybe we are without law. We just do actually whatever we want in our own heads. You want to think about something, fantasize about something, you just do it. That's how it can be, I mean, with, with these kind of people. And actually they're without law. They're lawless. But of course, to cover that, they're very externally obedient. The Lord then in 29 and onwards starts to be, I think, very tough. He, he says, you build the tombs of the prophets and your fathers killed them. Therefore, and thereby, you're saying that uh, you are guilty of the, the sins of your fathers. Well, that sort of doesn't really follow. That's being pretty tough. And then he says, you talk about, oh, we wouldn't have done what our fathers did. Oh, you use the phrase, our fathers. Therefore, you assume that uh, they're your fathers and you therefore have done what, what they would do. And you would do what they did. Well, that's a bit tough because, I mean, all sorts of people in the scriptures use the phrase, our fathers. Paul particularly, talking about the Jews, Jewish fathers, uh, without there being any, any sense of uh, personal agreement with what they did. Now, why is the Lord being so apparently uh, tough with them? I, I think the answer is in Psalm 69, where we read there at the end of the psalm that God will add iniquity unto their iniquity. In the same way as righteousness is imputed, sin also is imputed to those on the downward spiral. And his whole idea when he quotes the, the blood of Abel up to the blood of Zechariah, he said, that is all demanded of you. Well, again, you could say, well, isn't that a bit tough? Aren't you making people suffer for the sins of their fathers? Well, I think the answer is, and I've given three examples there where the Lord does this. He imputes the blood of Abel to Zacharias on, on these guys, on that generation. He says, you use the phrase, our fathers, and that means that you agree with what your fathers did. Well, they said they didn't. And that you build the, the tombs of the prophets. That means that you agree with what your fathers did by killing them. I would argue that those... Uh, three things are, are the Lord adding iniquity unto their iniquity. So there is an upward and a downward spiral. There is the Holy Spirit and also an evil spirit from the Lord. And the simple outcome of that is that we cannot be passive in our spiritual life. We really can't be. God is waiting there to push us one way or the other. And of course he wants us earnestly to go the right way. Verse 33, how can you escape the condemnation of Gehenna? And this, I think, is the Lord's appeal to them. How can you? This is a rhetorical question. Uh, and he uses the same word for escape later on in the Olivet Prophecy when he talks about fleeing from Jerusalem. How can you escape the condemnation, the judgment which is to come or flee? That's the advice he gives them in chapter 24. And he's repeating, actually, John the Baptist's words. 
He said, when John said in Luke 3, 7, O generation of vipers, the Lord has just called them a generation of vipers, uh, who has warned you to flee, same word, escape, from the wrath to come? He's saying, look, you all heard John preach, all Jerusalem went out to hear him. Look, do what he said. And what did he say? Accept Jesus. Now, verse 36 I, I I find really quite profound. He says, all these things shall come upon this generation. But it did not. It did not. That generation died in their beds. The average lifespan of people in the first century was it seems, not more than 30 or at the most 40 years. And a lot of these people were certainly in their 30s, if not older. Um, there's a number of articles I, I reference in my notes, which are based on analysis of bones uh, and uh, tomb inscriptions uh, found from the first century Palestine, which all seem to, to come up with the same kind of figure between 30 and 40 years. Now, from AD 33 to AD 70 is nearly 40 years. That generation that crucified Jesus died in their beds. And yet here he talks about this huge judgment that is to come upon that generation. And it didn't. Now, that is not to say that God's word is not, uh, does not come true. What I think we have, we have here, and we're going to see this when we look at the, the whole Olivet Prophecy, which now the Lord's words at the end of chapter 23 lead into that, I think what we're seeing uh, is a gap, a delay in judgment. If I were God, I would want to pick up those guys who crucified my son and really screw them and really see them squirm and make sure they got their judgment in this life. I'm not saying they're not going to get their judgment at the second coming. They will. But my point is that it's amazing they didn't get it in this life. And why didn't they? Well, 2 Peter 3 tells you why they didn't. Because God was long-suffering. He wanted them to repent. And not just them, but all Israel. And Jesus says, Your house is left unto you desolate, verse 38. And later on in chapter 24, we read about the abomination that makes desolate uh, that would come. This was only fulfilled in AD 70. This was nearly 40 years later. So why this delay? Why this delay? It's the same question we're going to meet when we look in chapter 24. The Lord clearly connects the destruction of the temple with the end of the age and his return, his parousia, his physical coming in glory. The temple was destroyed, he didn't come. Because, again, there was a delay in God's purpose. Uh, and why? The prophetic program is going to work out, but it was rescheduled, just as it was with Nineveh. In 40 days, Nineveh shall be destroyed. It was not. Because in their case, they repented. And it works the other way. Because people didn't repent, therefore there is this great uh, delay. And I just, you know, I can only take my breath, sharply take my breath, at the absolute grace of God, that instead of seeing those guys squirming and bringing this judgment upon Jerusalem, that wicked city, uh, right, right away after the crucifixion, he doesn't even bring the judgment that his own son uh, predicted on that generation. As I say, it, it shall come. It shall come at the last day when these guys are resurrected and have to meet him. But 
it didn't happen. And, and the reason it didn't happen, I guess, is multifactorial. Israel didn't repent uh, and, and so forth. But 2 Peter 3 says the reason was, the reason was because he was giving them time. Now that is incredible. That is his, the extent of his desire for human repentance. And repentance of people, the men who crucified Jesus, who we would really have given up on. And we'd say, look, Jesus gave them so many, this is your last warning kind of talks. And, well, if that was their last warning, it was their last warning. That's it. They'd had plenty of last chances. And still he delays. Now, if you have a niggling doubt as to whether God's grace is enough for you, I believe it is. And I believe his whole attitude to Israel is, is the classic uh, parade example of that. But he says, verse 39, You will not see me henceforth until you shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. That is a difficult verse, but this quote, Blessed is he that comes, this is right out of the Passover Hallel about Messiah. So he's saying to these wretched men who he said, you know, you will not be gathered together. Your house is left unto you desolate. He's saying that you will see me again when you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. When is that? When did those guys ever say that in this life? They never did. But they will do at the day of judgment. So as I see it, what he's saying is that at the day of judgment, then they will accept him. But it will be too late. It's rather like the Egyptians fleeing against the, uh, the waters as they came back at the Red Sea, as the waters came back upon them. And then, we're told, Exodus 14, 18, then they knew Yahweh. They knew the Lord in their condemnation, but too late. And I think that is the weeping and gnashing of teeth. That finally men and women will come to know him, just as I said, we come to be abased one way or the other. And of course it's our wisdom to do that in this life, rather than having to go through the process of condemnation to learn that. And yet, as I say, condemnation is there, and the Bible says a lot about it, and it's going to be awful. But, can't you see from the whole tenor of the Lord's teaching here, that he desperately does not want that to come even upon those who crucified him, and even that generation, even their punishment was delayed and rescheduled because God so wanted human repentance. That's how much he wants us to be in his kingdom. 